0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 12. As you are giving generously this morning your gifts uh, for kingdom work we 're grateful I want to also express our gratitude for those of you that are veterans. You heard the announcement, and please be aware that there is a reception between all three services this morning at the uh, adult Ministry center, which is down the hallway and to the right. We in- invite all of you that are uh, uh, veterans that have served our country and i, I just tell you what it makes me feel like i I got to get in my car this morning and drive from my house out here, and I had no fear at all that I'd be stopped or punished or questioned or prohibited, all because of some of the sacrifices you made uh, to allow us to live in a country where we have freedom, and we value that here, right? And uh, you bet. You bet. So... While we're giving generously, we want to acknowledge those who have also given very generously toward that. And so we invite all of you, and if you have someone serving in the military right now, we encourage you, please go down to that reception so we can say thank you. Uh, there as well. One last thing you might, if you picked up a bulletin this morning, uh, there has been an invitation just to Christ Church people that Hope City, which is a church we planted uh, in South Joplin, opened their building two weeks ago. Uh, they've had over 900 people each week uh, at those services down there, and they are going to have an open house for just our church from 2 to 4 this afternoon. Information's in your bulletin. If you participated in our previous campaign that helped us plant, Hope City, then you are invited and we would love for you to participate. So if you're interested in seeing that facility, please look at the bulletin and get that information and that's this afternoon. If you are visiting, my name is Mark. Uh, I have the privilege of being one of the ministers of this church and uh, grateful to have that uh, assignment and that responsibility. Uh, Love this church. Uh, We have been talking about a vision that the leadership of the church has put together and we're calling it the Generations Campaign and it is to uh, impact the generation we live with and generations that will come beyond us. And in week one, uh, we've taken a little break in our gospel series, although we're using pieces of it, and we talked about that in Genesis chapter three, the great lie was manifested amongst men that God can't be trusted, that he's not good and he's not wise, and so you can't trust him. And then we learn in Genesis three that God's answer to that was, I will send someone who will prove to you I can be trusted, and his name was Jesus. In week two, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he gathered his followers that understood that he was the solution to the great lie, and he gathered them together, and he entrusted them in Matthew chapter 28 that he would give them all the authority and power they needed to do what he asked, and then he commissioned them to go into all the world and witness to who he was. That's what we've learned in these two weeks. And tying it all together today, I want to take you to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to walk through the passage in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus addresses a crowd. And in moments he he talks to a couple of people and then another moment he talks to all the crowd and then another moment he hones in on just his followers. And we'll learn something from that as well today. But what I want to tell you that we're going to do is we're going to look at how do you measure a life? How do you figure out if your life is measured by the things God wants you to measure it by? And what we'll do this morning is I'm going to share with you several of them. Three of them tell you what a life is not measured by, and one of them is what it should be measured by. But a life with God is simply a life that trusts and lives responsibly. But I want to be careful. I didn't say responsibly. I said responsively. Seeing what God's doing and becoming a part of it. You see, Jesus is the rewarder of our trust in him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, one of the most famous passages in all the book of Hebrews says these words. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's two things our faith requires, that Jesus is real and that he will reward those who pursue him. And by that, we can live by faith. So we live responsibly, not asking God to get in on what we're doing, but asking if we can get in on what he's doing. You see, the vision that we have for where we need to go is not for us to choose to do something hoping a good thing happens. Like, hey, let's make some smoke and see if we can get some fire. No, we're actually going to where the smoke already is. We want to go where God's already working and participate in that. And you're going to hear some themes this morning. It's why I'll be brief in some of the points for those of you visiting. Is I'm going to be brief because we've already covered this in the Gospels. So if you understand, then why are you talking about it again? Because Jesus repeatedly teaches these core core values through the Gospels. He talks about several things several times. So maybe this expression will mean something to you. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Why do people say that? Because it is a core value that needs to be talked about repeatedly. So what we're going to learn today are things that we may have heard the echoes of from previous sermons. Let's take a peek. How do we measure a life in the kingdom of God? Well, first, a life is not measured by the esteem of others. It's not measured by what people think of us. And unfortunately, for too many of, or even for me, in my life, there have been moments that I've worried more about what you think of me than I've worried about what God thinks of me, or actually what God already knows about me and what he's trying to work on in me. If I can get you to think of me in a certain way, fantastic. That makes me feel better about me, but it doesn't change the reality of who I really am. Verses 1 and 2. As thousands of people crowded around Jesus and were stepping on each other, he told his disciples Be sure to guard against the dishonest teachings of the Pharisees. It is their way of fooling people. Everything that is hidden will be found out, and every secret will be made known. It's a powerful statement. We defined a couple weeks ago that a hypocrite is a person who wears a mask and plays a role and Jesus says to fool people, to get people to think they're something they're not so they can gain advantage by those thoughts. And we have learned from Jesus that his problem with the Pharisees, not was that it wasn't that they were worthy of going to hell. His problem with the the teachers of religion in his day is they weren't living out what they knew to be true, and yet they were painting themselves and wearing a mask in front of everyone so that people thought they were the best. That's why our Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you can't be a part of my kingdom. Hypocrisy can fool people, but it doesn't fool you. You know who you are, and you know what you need, and each one of us knows we need saved. So measuring a kingdom life is not measured by what others think of us. Second of all, life is not measured by our possessions. We're going to jump down to verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' Jesus replied, "'Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you?' Then he said to them, "'Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions.'" And he told him this parable. The crowd, or the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Let's pause there for a moment. Jesus is saying, He has enough space for the stuff He already has, but He needs to build bigger barns. He already has barns, He has enough, but it's not enough. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Jesus was not offering a carefree lifestyle here. In fact, he was talking to an audience so different than you and I. And let me explain how. N.T. Wright says that many of Jesus' hearers had just enough to survive a day, which is why they would pray, give us today our daily bread. And they might own one spare garment. They might have an extra jacket or an extra pair of pants, but they didn't have a closet full of clothes. As He said, which is so different than our non-Western world, one disaster, if the breadwinner of the home became disabled or sick for an extended period of time, it would mean instant destitution. They didn't have... Retirement funds, they didn't have bank accounts, they didn't have these things. They might have had some possessions, but they would burn through those quickly. He said, it's not like our world. We're worried about having the best new car or the the best phone or to have a multi-gift holiday. He said, Jesus' audience never would have considered those things. And he even spoke to them and said, be on guard against greed. And then he told them a story of a greedy man who missed a point. Even when they ask him hey, tell my brother to give me part of the inheritance. Jesus says, why are you asking me to get involved in it? Is this about money or is it about justice? Because Jesus would address justice, but he had no interest in getting in people's arguments over greedy issues. There's a word the Bible uses, especially in the King James translation, for those of us raised with that, it's the word covet. And to covet means to find satisfaction in something you don't possess. It's it, We're told in the king james translation in the ten commandments you're not to covet your neighbor's possessions and it lists several of them as examples you're not to look at someone who's got that new vehicle and go man if i had that that would really make me what happy hmm you see when we covet something we're basically saying i don't have enough to live the life that i've been asked to live it's the lie from genesis 3 that god's not good If I just had this car, if I just had this extra lake home, if I just had this expense paid vacation, if I just had this promotion, then God would really show his goodness to me as if he's not good without those things. that's why the Bible tells us we're not to covet. Covet is based on more. It's very Western. If I had more of this and more of that, I'd be more satisfied and I'd be more valuable and I'd be more of whatever I thought I needed. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, speaking to people like you and I, said these words, command those who are rich in this present world, and we'll press pause there for a moment. Many of us will dismiss this and say, I'm not rich. You may not be rich in your own mind, but do you understand that our ability and what we have in this room alone puts us in the top 10% of the richest people in the entire world? the fact that you had multiple outfits you could have chosen to, to wear today, that you had a home, that you had heat and air conditioning, that you had options for food and you have multiple options throughout the day and that you have any cash in your pocket or the ability to access that. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I need you to understand, we are blessed. And Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You see, wealth can be one of two things. It can be a window by which we look through it and find God or it can be a mirror in which we only see ourselves. I want you to think about that with me. Wealth is either a window that shows us God and all of his beauty or it's a mirror that only shows us ourselves and we become the focus of it. In this parable that Jesus told, the man became very selfish and when his life was required of him, he had no answer for who was going to save him since he couldn't save himself. Life is not measured by what people think of us and it's not measured by what we possess. Thirdly, life is not measured by the things we lack either. Verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. Worry. It is the mental distress caused by uncertainty and our lack of control. It's the uncertainty. It's a dress that we put ourselves under. We worry about things that we don't know what's going to happen, and we fear that we can't control what we want to happen. Jesus said, don't worry. Notice what he's told us. Don't worry about what people think of you. Don't worry about how much you have, and don't worry about what you don't have. He said, trust. So I go walking through our neighborhood, and every day I pass by the most beautiful tree I've ever seen in my entire life. Now, coming from northern Indiana and Michigan, where red oaks and red maples are all over the place, I don't see many of those around here. I'm I'm assuming because everything was strip mined around here, the good trees were gone. But when I go by this tree in our neighborhood, I can't even begin to describe to you the color of orange it is. It's like a tangerine orange with hues of red And a darker brown, and it's got yellow. It's just the most gorgeous tree. And Heather and I were walking yesterday, and we went by this tree, and she goes, I love that tree. And I said, do why? Because we don't always walk at the same time. I go, that's my favorite tree. I said, it's going to be a sad day when those leaves fall. I went by yesterday, and there's not many fallen. That tree is still gorgeous. And I just look at God, and I go, you're good. I mean, he's just flat showing off for me. I've even said, you want to, you know, how about you keep them there all year long? And everybody goes, what's with that tree? And I go, my God, you know, something like that. But anyway. (laughs) I thought it'd be fun. <laughs> They'll all be gone tomorrow, right? And I'm going, dang it. I ruin everything. So anyway, it's just a beautiful color. And I'm wondering, if there any other tree in the world that same color? Now, some people, oh, yeah, probably. No, no, no. I think God has got the ability, don't you, to create one leaf that has a color of yellow in it that nothing else will ever see. Romans 1 tells me that I know there's a God because I look at creation and I think, Yep. The majesty of God is displayed in his creation. And Jesus said, look at creation. Look at flowers and birds. That tree did nothing. That tree has done nothing since it was planted. It just sits there, absorbs minerals from the ground, water from the ground, and it is beautiful. And Jesus said, if God can do that with that tree mark, then what are you missing that you have to have to find purpose? And do you know what the answer is, don't you, church? Absolutely nothing. That's why Jesus said, be careful you're not greedy and be careful you don't waste your life away worrying about what you can't control and the uncertainty of life. It's not measured by the esteem of others, what we possess or don't possess. What is it then? A life is measured by its relationship to the kingdom. By the relationship to the king. A real life is measured that way. Let me explain how. Verse 31. But seek his kingdom. Now I want pause here. Jesus was talking to the whole crowd, and then he talked to his disciples, and now he says to them, don't worry, don't be greedy, don't be a hypocrite, but instead, seek his kingdom. This is how we're to measure our lives. Are we seeking the kingdom? And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus has given us the solution to how we're to live our lives. You see, the priority of the hypocrite, remember? Do do not wear masks? The priority of the hypocrite is appearance, getting people to think of your identity the way you want them to. The priority of the coveting person is possessions, to have things that make you feel fulfilled. The priority of the anxious person, the worrier, is security, the uncertainty, and lack of control. So the world says, put on an appearance, have as many possessions as you can get your hands on, and worry about the things you can't control. And the priority of the follower of Jesus, however, is this. It's the kingdom, because in the kingdom, you get the right identity. In the kingdom, you get the right value. And in the kingdom, you find security. The things the world offers are temporary. Jesus even said in the parable, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? He also said, who's going to take these possessions you left behind for your bigger barns? Because it's inferred, you're not taking them with you. And if we know we're not here for long, why would we invest ourselves in things that will be here after we're gone? You see, Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose the one thing he's going to have to protect, his soul? See, the teaching today is found around one major theme. And this is right from scripture. It's found around this thing. If it, when I was growing up, Sesame Street always did this and I always liked it. It makes you remember things. Today's lesson is brought to you by the word responsibility and the letter Q, something like that. You see, responsibility is what we're talking about. Jesus told the parable of a man who had more than he needed but couldn't see it outside of himself. And so Jesus told a story. And what he taught us in that story is profound. What are our responsibilities in the kingdom of God? How will we be measured? First of all, we have a personal responsibility for our choices. In verse 19, the man in the story says, "'So I said to my soul, take your ease, "'eat, drink, and be merry.'" Live a life of comfort. Be comfortable. Jesus called that man a fool. In the parable, if you'll notice the pronouns, the man refers to himself 12 times. I, me, my. He even refers to himself in the annoying third person. Speaking to himself about himself. You see, we have the responsibility for our choices, but life is not just about me. It's what Dr. Timothy Keller says becomes the personal reign mentality, that we can and should have what we want. And our life is to be successful so that at the end of our lives, we can be comfortable. And Jesus actually says, no, nah, that's not it. A story I read a long time ago about a mother, said she was at a birthday party with her son, true story. And it wasn't her son's birthday. She was just helping her friend out with the party, and they brought out the cake. And as they brought out the cake, with it all lit up, her son Brian yelled out loud in front of everybody, I want the biggest piece! And his mother said she was horrified. She pulled her son aside, and she said, that's rude. It's not polite to ask for the biggest piece. She said her son looked at her, and he was discouraged and frustrated, and finally he he looked at her and said, then how do you get it? I thought, dude, I get that kid. Absolutely, because it may not be polite. That doesn't change what I want. He's asking a profound question. Rudyard Kipling has this powerful quote. Do not pay too much attention to fame, power, and money. Someday you will meet a person who cares for none of these things, and then you will know how poor you have allowed yourself to become. That's what Jesus was telling us. When he warns us, be on guard, he's saying, I'm wise, and I'm good, and I'm trying to show you what the Father has in store for you better than what this world offers you. We have personal responsibility for our choices. We have personal responsibility for others. Look at verses 17 and 18. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. Charles Birch said something a long time ago that I've never forgotten. The rich must live more simply that the poor may simply live. It's not just about me. It's about why has God given me what he's given me and when is enough enough? It's counterintuitive counter for most Americans. Why? Because we see our money belonging to us. Why? Because we earned it. I worked hard for that. That's mine. And to a degree, it's correct. <clears throat> we have earned it. And we did work. And the ability to work... And the ability to provide for our families is a gift from God. Work is not a punishment, remember? They worked in the garden before there was a punishment for sin because there was no sin. They cultivated the garden. They took care of the land. They fed from the ground. They fed the animals. Work is a blessing of God. And so the blessings of God result in worship of God if we get it figured out. You see, when we cast this vision of generations, as I said earlier, we weren't trying to create something. We were actually seeing opportunities to get in on what God was already doing. And we take these responsibilities from Scripture seriously, that we do have to measure our choices, and we do have to measure the needs of others. And we're asking ourselves, can we simplify our lifestyles so that others may have what we've committed our lives to, which is what the Great Commission taught us. So we have responsibility for what we choose to do, and I also have a responsibility to look out for others as well, to love my neighbor as myself. Thirdly, we have personal responsibility toward God. The man represented in his parable forgot one key point, that he would answer to God one day for what he did with all God gave him. Now, if you're feeling threatened right now, everybody take a deep breath, you're okay. Because we have a God who's full of grace and mercy, Right? We have a God who loves us. We have a God who's not looking down. I mean, I, I looked at it earlier, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, Heather gave me a gold ring 30 years ago. And I could be sitting up here going, you know what, if you had that gold ring and you gave that money to the poor, then someone could have this and this. God is not shaming you into looking at what you have and simply saying to you, how dare you have that? That's not what he does. What he says is, now Mark, that you have that, did it change who you were? Or do you see what you have and say, I'd like to offer that to others? I'd like to take the enjoyment that I get. Instead of having more comfort, I actually want to find more joy. And Jesus said, so don't become greedy. Don't worry about what other people think. He said, and, and don't worry about what you can't control. Trust me. Give to me. Jesus is telling us he wants us to live his Spartan lifestyles, that he doesn't want us to have air conditioning, or he doesn't want us to have a nice bed to sleep in, or, or shame on you if you have two coats. He's not saying that at all. He's simply saying, I'm not asking you to give up your comfort, I'm asking you to give out your joy, to give out of a generous heart, to see others as valuable. In Luke 12, 20, he said in the parable, your life will be demanded from you. In verse 21, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. So each one of us must ask the question, what am I here for? And don't be foolish in how you answer it. This is what Jesus challenged the audience that day and primarily challenged his disciples to pay attention to. Why are you here? We owe it to ourselves to consider the responsibilities we have and then respond responsibly. You see, there's even a passage in Proverbs chapter 30, if you want to jot that down. In Proverbs 30, there's a simple passage where the Proverbs writer says, God, I pray that you don't make me so rich I forget you or so poor that I have to beg. And somewhere in between there is where God wants you to live your life. You see, this church has a great history. It really does. And I don't mean, I want to be really careful how I say that. Because if you're new here, you're like, wow, you know, the pastor said it's a great church. No, I'm saying that about the church I came to, not the church it is now. The history that preceded me is one of the reasons my wife and I were willing to come here. Not because it was a favor, you know, I'm doing you, but you did us. And sometimes we preachers, guys like me, we get way too much credit for this place. People are like, well, he's a senior pastor there. He must be the reason. Nope. If a jockey gets on a good horse, who won the race? The jockey or the horse? The jockey's only job is to hold on. <laughs> That's all the preacher does, is hold on. Pray a lot and hold on. This church was ready and it has been. It's history. One of the members of this church for the last 40 or 50 years shared something with me in an email. It was beautiful. She said she breaks into tears when she thinks about the what we would call the unnamed unfaced people who sacrificed. And what she told me was the people that preceded us who sacrificed didn't have a lot to sacrifice. It cost them something for this church to grow and to buy this property and to build these buildings. And I hope for one thing today that every single one of us who is newer to this church can be grateful for the shoulders we stand on for people who lifted us up. I would think on Veterans Weekend, we would have an awareness that most of the good things we have in life, we didn't earn. Somebody blessed us with them. And this vision is to be a blessing to generations, to bless generations that will never know our names, and to sacrifice now so future generations will know the Jesus Christ we commit to. You see, our vision as a church is simple, to discover completeness in Jesus, to, for God's people to discover what it is to live a complete life in Jesus. That's why he says, beware of what, beware of what people think, don't. Beware how much money you have. He said, don't. Be aware of what you don't have. Don't. He said, be aware of what you already have in Jesus. That's what we want people to know. So we have four initiatives. And there's a booklet in the back. And I encourage you, if you haven't read through it, please. It'll give you details I can't or don't have time to give you this morning. We want to plant where the gospel can take root. So we want to help Mustard Seed Fellowship in Japan plant in the second largest unchurched people group in the world. We're already invested in India, the largest people group, and now we want to head to Japan. We want to begin a Thursday night worship service for people that can't and won't come on weekends. And we want to do it in a different way, so we're not inviting them to a church service. We're inviting them to a community of people that will love them and extend grace to them. We want to build where the gospel is already present. We want to remodel our children's ministry space, make it safer and more productive for what our ministry team wants to do down there. We want to construct, uh, construct, rather, a new worship theater on our campus so that during this hour and during our third hour at 1045, when this room is full and it keeps getting fuller and fuller, praise God, that we don't want to try to create smoke. We want to go where there's fire. And we want to create room on our campus for people to worship in a space where we can do simultaneous worship and bless more and more people. You see, and we want to do this, and and here's the kick. And I know this is the part where I could really make you mad. But I, we need to say it. It's going to cost every one of us something if this is going to happen. And I know you don't come to church to have people talk to you about your money. But when Jesus talks to us about our money, then the church ought to talk about money. So we're, we're challenging people. And we have a need. And this need is big. I want to show you what it's going to take. What our investment would be to get this done. It's going to be a lot of money. And it's not gonna be able to be done by the 30 or 25 or 30% of the people who attend here on Sundays who give financially so this ministry can operate. It's gonna require those who aren't currently giving to start giving for the very first time if you see what we see. If you see the opportunity to invest in generations. And it's gonna take more than we're able to do now. And this is why it's a, it's a frightening ask with the risk of being told no. But we believe God might do something. Here's what it would take For 2018, a two-year sacrificial ask. We'd like to raise a million dollars for Japan. A quarter of a million dollars to do Thursday nights. We'd like to raise a million dollars for the children's ministry space. The new theater we're projecting on our plans, uh, which are really rough, but we're projecting it at about $2.25 to be able to build that just to your right out into that parking lot. Our current budget to operate for two years with projected insurance increases and so forth with new buildings and all of that is $8.3 million. You total that all up, that's $12.8 million. Right now, truth be told, based on the giving we have, we can't do this. That's why we thought as a church we would cast a vision in front of our people and God would either move our hearts or he won't. If he doesn't move our hearts, then he's got something else in store for us, but we really believe that this is an opportunity that we can get in on what he's doing. Also at those tables around the room as you exit this morning is a commitment card. We'll be collecting those next Sunday in our worship service. And we're asking every family to take one of those. You can pick one of those up as you go through and read through it and talk as a family because it will take, it won't take 30% of the church funding the church. It's going to take 70 to 80% of those who participate at Christ Church who call it their church home to sacrifice for this to make it work. And on that card, you're going to have an opportunity to state what you normally give to the ministry in a year. There's just one line you put down. My wife and I would say, our tithe is this percent, or this amount, and we put that on the first line. We're going to ask every single person to take a step of faith. If you're a person who gives nothing, to start giving something with regularity. If you give regularly but not consistently, I mean, you have an amount, it depends on what you have in your wallet, we're going to ask you to consider giving Uh, something with regularity, but also approaching a tithe. The biblical standard of giving found in scriptures at 10%. For some that tithe, to give a little bit more, to increase your tithe for that two-year window so this can happen. For those that are already giving over 10%, uh, to find a way to sacrifice. Maybe it's volunteering more rather than giving more. There's opportunities for all of us. And then we're going to ask you to share what you're willing to give over and above what you normally give to figure out what that amount is. And that's what it's going to take, is a sacrifice above what we're now currently doing. And it will allow you to project those numbers over two years. And then there's a line on that card, and this is the most powerful for me in the past few years. The last time we did this kind of vision campaign, there was a, a, a friend of mine in the church who had a classic car collection. He liquidated that classic car collection and gave a large percentage of that money to the church so that Hope City which is now running, as I told you, well over 900 people on a Sunday morning exist because people like that did things like this. We had people liquidate stock options and do wonderful things and simply said, I'm not going to take a vacation. I had a couple come up to me and say, we're not going to take a spring break. We always have a big family spring break. We're not going to do that this year. Praise the Lord for that. They didn't have to do that, but they saw the vision and they said, this is what we can do so other people can know that Jesus we're committed to. See, this is a challenge of trust. As a preacher, just let me take the the mask off for a second. I know the minute I talk about money, uh, my popularity numbers drop. Uh, And the elders will tell you this. I don't want to be up here doing this right now except for one simple reason. I am so stinking excited about what might happen if we do this. The number of people who might know Jesus Christ. I don't want to give up vacations. I don't want to give up our money. There's a lot of things. I'm the most selfish guy in this room, but I'll tell you at the end of the day, my wife and I are committed because we believe, we've seen what God does in this ministry and we want to invest in it while we're here. While I'm alive, I want to invest in the kingdom so God would never look at me and go, you fool, you spent all your money on you and you missed the greatest joy of life. You had a chance to be a blessing. And so this is hard, but we believe God's going to move. And next week as a part of our worship, we're going to ask you to bring your commitment card You can fill it out next Sunday or you can fill it out this week. You can go online to our webpage, Generations, and you can fill out an online card. But we're going to see at the conclusion of this, we'll announce the number in December. I think December 10th is the date that we'll announce the givings over the next three weeks and see what God does. And we'll celebrate it one way or the other because if you're asking God what he wants to do with you, he'll answer. And we'll praise God for that. But we're excited about what God might do with this vision if we give our hearts to it. Bye. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.